This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia Dean. Today is Tuesday, December 14th. Coming up, even years after they return from war, many veterans are still trying to heal from moral injury, a sort of cousin to post-traumatic stress disorder. In Kansas City, a group of service members found that writing can help. When you're talking to somebody you think might not love you again because what they hear is so awful or might think you're a little nuts or what, they, they won't talk about it. Plus, how a deal between railroad companies could reshape the industry, local employment, and transportation options. But first, some headlines. Jackson County legislators voted narrowly against reimposing a face mask mandate yesterday, despite the urging of the county health director. KCUR's Carlos Moreno has more. According to Jackson County Health Director Bridget Schaefer, COVID cases in all age groups have been increasing. The CDC lists Jackson County as an area of high transmission, but several legislators cited intense public resistance to any further mask requirements. Jalen Anderson of the 1st District voted in favor of the mandate, which failed four votes to five. We have so much ahead of us still. This mandate does not end or begin your lives. Jackson County still faces a lawsuit from Attorney General Eric Schmidt over its first mandate, which ended a month ago. Schmidt had threatened to file another suit if Monday's proposal passed. The Lee's Summit School District has refused to back down on its COVID-19 orders, despite a warning from Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt. Jody Fortino reports. Schmidt sent letters last week to dozens of school districts across the state, threatening legal action if they did not drop their mask and quarantine policies. In a blistering letter, a lawyer for the Lee Summit School District said Schmidt had no legal authority to do so. The letter cited a 1963 law that allows school officials to exclude students who have or are liable to transmit a contagious disease. The lawyer, Joe Hatley, said he's prepared to defend the district vigorously if Schmidt falls through on his threat to sue. The Veteran Readers Theater Project in Kansas City is helping former service members deal with their feelings about war. And Knigendorf reports for the American Homefront Project, the program encourages veterans to write about their experiences and present them to the public. On a recent evening, nine Kansas City area veterans and family members gathered online to share the vivid war-related experiences they've spent months turning into poetry and stories. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the fourth annual Veterans Readers Theater. Navy veteran George Pettigrew acted as moderator and spoke about the night's theme, the classic hero's journey. He said the adventurer battles internal and external monsters, and sometimes the hero brings home a gift to share. The most important gift a hero can offer is a story to tell. But that story can be difficult or impossible to get out. Rita Nakashima Brock helped start the Kansas City Initiative for people dealing with moral injury. When you're talking to somebody you think might not love you again because what they hear is so awful or might think you're a little nuts or what, they, they won't talk about it. Brock directs the Shea Moral Injury Center at Volunteers of America in Alexandria, Virginia. Moral injury is a feeling of shame or guilt following an event a person participates in or witnesses that goes against their moral beliefs. Because moral injury isn't identified as a disorder, ordinary people who are just suffering moral dilemmas in ways that make them feel like they're not good people could relate to the term. Brock says that in the case of military members, the injury may follow carrying out an order to shoot, for instance, but it happens to civilians also. 
She says she's seeing moral injury a lot right now in healthcare when doctors and nurses must decide who receives scarce resources during the pandemic. The writing group in Kansas City doesn't treat anyone, but Brock says it offers a safe space with writing resources for veterans and their families. And once you can externalize it in some way, you can actually process it. And that's when you start to recover. My enemies wore the same clothes. My career, they managed to dispose. During the Reader's Theater, Air Force veteran Heather Smoot read her poem, My Destiny, about the trauma she suffered at the hands of other service members. But she also wrote into the recovery part of the journey. I never set out to be an unsung hero, but enduring my trials, I did grow. I vowed to never sign my life away. With my destiny, I'd have the last say. Army veteran John Michael Johnson, an independent filmmaker, didn't regularly write about his military experience. Until he joined the group, he was out of touch with other veterans and hadn't thought much about the years he spent in the Army during the Vietnam War. I probably was never as alone as as I was in that first year or so of being in the Army. The piece he wrote for the Reader's Theater is called Ars Poetica. Poetry is the whispered shout of thoughts thought while walking the street, tapping the dance of shuffling feet, raising questions. What's it about? Cindy McDermott is a retired Navy veteran and executive director of the Moral Injury Association of America. She says that PTSD and moral injury share a lot of characteristics. Anger, depression, anxiety, and at the worst, it's self-medication with alcohol or drugs. Counseling and group therapy are effective for some people with moral injury. And while writing isn't exactly a therapy, McDermott says it can offer relief. It's good for the veteran, but it's also good for the public to be able to hear their stories and uh, the price that we pay when we do have military action. To date, 2,000 veterans and family members have put their stories on paper with the Kansas City Vet Writing Group. Reframing their shame and guilt has helped them control their internal narratives and begin to heal. This is Ann Knigendorf in Kansas City. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Coming up, the future of Kansas City's iconic railroad. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. This is Kansas City Today. UMB Private Wealth Management is a division of UMB Bank that tailors financial planning services to help you maximize your assets and protect your legacy. Everything we do starts with you because there is no one-size-fits-all financial planning strategy. Your UMB experience begins with us taking the time to get to know you and understand your financial goals. Then we customize a detailed yet flexible plan that helps you achieve them. At UMB, your story is always our focus. Learn more at umb.com slash wealth hyphen management. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomeen Ujia-Dean. Local railroad company at Kansas City Southern is moving toward a merger with Canadian Pacific. Shareholders for both companies overwhelmingly approved the $31 billion deal last week. If regulators go along, the merger would make history and reshape the railroad industry for decades to come. KCUR's Frank Morris reports. Kansas City Southern has 6,700 miles of track in the U.S. and Mexico, 
Canadian Pacific has well over twice that mileage, stretching coast to coast across Canada and into the U.S. But there's one place where the two big railway networks meet, and that's right where I'm standing, at the KCS Joint Agency Yard in Kansas City's East Bottoms. Canadian Pacific goes north from here. Kansas City Southern goes south. And that simplicity is a major point of attraction between the two companies. It's an end-to-end merger. There's no overlap whatsoever. Bill Vantuano is editor of Railway Age magazine, and he says the proposed merger pairs very complementary companies. What they will be able to give to customers is seamless service all the way from Canada, from both east and west, down to the border at Laredo, then that reach into Mexico. That makes the franchise extremely valuable. Because one company will now be able to move Canadian grain and petroleum products all the way to ships waiting in the Gulf of Mexico and haul Mexican-built cars and appliances to far-flung points north. That'll speed up shipments considerably. And Vantuano says it's never been possible before. So this is the first transnational railway. Kansas City Southern is by far the smallest of the seven major North American railroads. But it's doing just fine. It doesn't need this merger to survive. It's a very strong railroad. It always has been. It has a great history. And uh, I'm surprised it's remained independent this long. It has in part because big railway mergers are rare these days. There hasn't been one in more than 20 years. Regulators are leery of them because the number of railroads plummeted last century. There are seven Class I railroads now. There used to be hundreds. Railroads were some of the original monopolies. Railroad barons made fortunes gouging shipping customers who had no other options. So maintaining competition among railroads is central to regulatory policy. And for decades, regulators worried that one more merger could trigger a round of consolidation, ending with two or three colossal railroads. It's a fear that's hung over the industry like an end times prophecy. Fantuano says the one merger possible that would not do that would be the one between the two smallest Class I railroads, Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern. This is not going to touch off, quote-unquote, the final round. In fact, proponents of the merger say that marrying Kansas City Southern and Canadian Pacific would set up a stable, even symmetrical, railroad map. Patrick Waldron is spokesman for Canadian Pacific. So you have two railroads in the West, you have two railroads in the East, and you have two railroads that go across Canada and also run north-south to the center of the U.S. And while Kansas City Southern would be dissolved as a company, the U.S. headquarters for the merged railroad would be right here, where I'm standing now, at 12th and Washington in downtown Kansas City, where Kansas City Southern's been headquartered for decades. Waldron says employment here would likely be stable or grow as some of the jobs from Canadian Pacific's current U.S. headquarters in Minneapolis migrate here. The company also anticipates handling a lot more freight after the merger. They're going to need more people. Both CEOs have said that. This is a growth scenario here. That's Bill Vantuano again. The combined company projects spending more than a quarter billion dollars on track improvements. And Vantuano says it could bring something fun to Kansas City. Amtrak sees opportunity for a new service from Kansas City to New Orleans. That's a distinct possibility. And then there's the name. Kansas City would retain its status, along with Santa Fe, as a named railroad town. The new railroad would be called KPKC, Canadian Pacific, Kansas City. 
For KCUR 89.3, I'm Frank Morris. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. This podcast was produced by Byron Love and edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. To hear Frank's story on Kansas City Southern and Anne's story on the Veteran Readers Theater Project, visit kcur.org, where you can also find more local news from Kansas City's NPR station. If you like our show, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app or leave us a voicemail at 816-235-8930 with your thoughts. Tomorrow, we'll see how schools in Kansas are handling the controversy around a critical race theory. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon.